0: you're listening to center church podcast at center church we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do you're about to hear a message but before you do we want to invite you to visit our website at center there you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it secondly we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc and finally if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe, and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in, and be blessed. Geographic, I think, is making him even more famous than he, should, than he was originally. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is um, <clears throat> the title of it is Rest Assured. What happened was um, we're getting ready for the wedding, and I think we had gone to Men's Warehouse out at Northlake, And we were getting uh, Aaron and Parker's outfit. And so the ladies, Carmen, uh, Christina, and Courtney are all over talking to the guys, I guess, working on details, arrangements, and stuff. And Leon and I are sitting down with the children. And uh, Parker's doing his thing. He found the thing where you measure people's feet, you know, that little metal thing. And he's going around measuring everybody that will let him. He's measuring everybody's feet and getting away with it. And so I thought, um, I'm going to run to the bathroom real quick. And you don't even realize sometimes you have so many things that, that you're standing for, believing for. Sometimes you, you're not conscious that you, you're doing that, but you are. And I, when I walked in the bathroom, there was a sign in the corner, and the Holy Spirit just grabbed my heart, and the sign said, rest assured. And the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, um, that's the kind of rest I need you to have. And I and I thought and it just didn't leave me. And if you think about it, you can sit down and in inside nobody can see it. Your heart is racing. Mm-hmm. You can lay down and go to sleep and that's a picture of rest and yet you're tormented while you're laying down, wondering what's gonna happen in the morning. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, You're learning rest, but I need you to rest assured. Of my faithfulness, Amen. and so I just you know something he's just been talking to me about and dealing with me, so last week, I was watching um Joseph Prince, and he was talking about the parable of the great feast now, what's the beauty of resting in the new covenant? you know for years. One of the most beautiful things for me about the new covenant is it's a finished work. Jesus did a finished work. Mm. And that's what we're learning every day. Because when we, Leon and I first came uh, into walking and following Jesus and and, uh, learning about him, we were taught you got to earn it. Mm. And I mean, that was probably 80% of our walk was now, did I do enough? Mm -hmm. And maybe I didn't. And maybe he won't because maybe I didn't. And it was always performance-based. And when we started to learn about the new covenant, about grace, for the first time I could exhale, Jesus did everything. He did it all. It's, the, it's not about me. The spotlight is not on me. It is a finished work. Mm. And Joseph Prince, I love to hear him, him say, we're not going to victory. We're coming from victory. Amen. Okay. We're not going to get something. We already have something. And so he was teaching um, last week about the parable of the great feast. And when he was talking, I actually think that may even be my first verse. It's in Luke 14, 17. And it says um, and so the man wanted to give a feast and he sent his servant out to compel people to come in. And when He says, it says servant, and it's an unknown servant. It's always a picture of the Holy Spirit. Whenever it's an unknown servant, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant, Holy Spirit, to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. And while he was teaching that, that just exploded in my spirit. First of all, he said, When it was ready, he said, tell them to come on. The banquet is ready. God is not going to invite you into a situation that has not already been prepared for you. He is just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. It's already been prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I started thinking, Psalm 23. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Why would God prepare a table and it not be complete and, my, and he knows my enemies are watching. In fact, he prepared it in front of them. Why would he not have everything I need on that table? Yes. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And it is a finished, complete work. I was singing about the Song of Solomon. When he, she said, he brought me to, she got an invitation into his tent. You all know I talk about Song of Solomon all the time. And it's a Shulamite, and Solomon comes to town, and he represents, he's a picture of Jesus, and she's a picture of the church. And despite how she feels about herself and she feels quite inadequate about herself. She, gets, she starts out by saying, smart woman, let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips. In one translation, that's the first time she ever saw him. He's a picture of Jesus. She says, let him kiss me. And another translation says, let him kiss me over and over and over again. Let him kiss me, for I perceive his love is better than wine. Mm-hmm. And what is she saying? She's smart. She's saying, I first have to understand how he loves me before I can give anything to anybody else. Let him kiss me. And because she says that, she gets an invitation into his tent, despite her saying, I don't feel adequate. And when she gets to his tent, she says, he brought me to his banqueting table, his banqueting table, and his banner over me was love. And it was a table that was prepared. And not just prepared; it was a banqueting table, a feast, already prepared. And when I saw this, God said, I brought you because of my son into a finished work. Every day you get up, he has brought you into a finished work. Thank you, Jesus. It's already been done. Thank you, Jesus. What was the problem with Adam and Eve? What was the mistake Adam and Eve made? It's this. God brought them into the garden, into a finished work, and they acted as if it was not finished. That was a mistake. They thought something else had to be added to their life when God had done everything. And they were deceived into thinking God's got to do something else. He didn't do it all. That was a mistake. Rest assured, it's a finished work. 2 Peter three nine. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You know, when we're believing for something, what can still our rest is if you don't see the manifestation. And while you're waiting on the manifestation of what you're believing for, that's kind of a gray area there. And the question is, is God going to do it? Um, Am I going to see the manifestation? And like I told you, we're all coming out of law. Did I do enough? But God says he isn't really being slow about his promise. He's being patient for who? for us because he wants us to he wants to bring us to a place where we change our mind now what are we changing our mind about number one about his faithfulness Mm -hmm. that's that's the main thing we're changing our mind if we have any bit of doubt Mm -hmm. any bit of worry in a bit, any bit of law still operating in us, what do I need to do next? He's bringing, it's a process, and he's bringing us from that place to the place where we change our mind about him. And we go to sleep, no, and we sit down, and we lay down knowing he's only faithful. That's the process he's bringing us to. Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.3 says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens to the end and will not fail. If it should be slow in coming, wait for it, for it will surely come. It will not delay. And Habakkuk, uh, the Chaldeans were coming against uh, the Israelites. Habakkuk didn't like it. He actually went to God complaining, how long are our enemies going to triumph? And we got to suffer with them. In fact, it looks like Habakkuk said they're doing better than we are. Mm -hmm. And he's complaining, and he finally gets a clue. Uh, God knows a little bit more than I do. And he says, I'm going to stand on my watchtower and see what God says when he corrects me. (laughs) Because if I'm doubting God, I am missing it somewhere. And he says, I'm going to stand on my watchtower until God corrects me. And God comes, and this is what he tells him. And he says, what you need to see, I have an appointed time for what you've asked for, what you're believing for. For my promise. I got an appointed time. And the answer is rushing to that appointed time. For that a manifestation. It's rushing to that. And he says, don't worry. It will surely come. Okay? Now, what happens is a lot of times when we're believing for something, like I was saying about even Habakkuk, circumstances don't line up. They just don't. And so I want to give you an example because God only loves us. He's only merciful. And now that Jesus has come, he is not angry at anybody. But even in the whole Old Testament, we would get glimpses of what he really wanted to do. And I want to talk to you a little bit about Jonah. Jonah's name means a dove, a picture of the Holy Spirit. And when God commissions Jonah uh, he says, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And Nineveh was a, was a huge city. In fact, the Bible says it took three days to, get, to walk from one end to the other. Um, quite a big place. And he says, and I want you to preach against it. So on face value, he says, uh, it doesn't sound like good news for Nineveh. But Jonah uh, had an issue. And his issue was Nineveh was full of his enemies. And he had so much confidence in God that he knew that if I preach against Nineveh, God's going to find a way to make this work. <laughs> he had so much confidence in not only in God's faithfulness, but also in God's mercy. And he wants me to go to them. I don't want to give them any opportunity to be okay because they are my enemy. And so he comes up with this brainstorm idea that he's going to go to Tarsus. But he has to go to Joppa to get a boat. Now I've been to Joppa. Even now to this day they have in the uh city this huge whale. <laughs> oh, they know what happened to Jonah. They've got this memorial of a whale. Everybody knows why it's there. And so and I love it. It's a beautiful place. You can stand where the memorial is and see the ocean. And so um so he goes to Joppa, and he gets on a boat, and everybody knows the story. Um, he gets in the boat, and there's this huge storm, and the guy's on the boat. Well, what's the problem? What's going on? And he has to confess, I'm the reason. I'm in disobedience to the Lord. And so he has to convince them to throw him overboard, and God, in his mercy, has a whale well prepared to catch him. Okay? Still giving Jonah an opportunity, too. So he has this huge whale that catches Jonah. And uh, you've heard Matthew preach about it a lot. He prayed in the past tense, okay, which is so powerful. And it's an awesome way to pray and probably the best way to pray because what are we talking about? A finished work. So he prays in the past tense. And when I was studying this, this caught my eye. And it's uh, Jonah 2, 7 through 8. It says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. He's in the belly of the whale, well. and he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, I believe for Jonah, his worthless idol was the anger. Anything that you exalt above the knowledge of God, anything that you exalt above who he is and what he is and the finished work of Christ becomes an idol. And he's in that well, and he says, those who cling to worthless idols, even unforgiveness, even hatred, Mm -hmm. those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He's thinking, I really didn't even need to be in this well. Okay? And when he gets to praying, God... God orders the whale and the whale spits him out. And where does he spit him out? Uh, Nineveh. <laughs> okay. Jonah, um, verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days. Nineveh will be overthrown. So he's about a third of the way and he starts shouting. And it's not even a message of hope. He says, you got 40 days and it's a wrap. You got 40 more days and it is over. And I can only imagine him probably being smug about it, maybe even being a little bit happy. You don't have but 40 more days. (laughs) And, you know, the people start responding, and news gets to the king, and everybody starts repenting. The king tells everybody to go on a fast, even the animals. I can't imagine. I used to do a lot more fasting than I do now, but I can't even imagine putting my dog on a fast. (laughs) They put all the animals on a fast. Everybody went on a fast. So I often tell you about this poster that used to be in my uh, in the hall of the high school that I worked in and I loved it It was one of my favorite ones. And it said mercy rejoices against judgment. When you have the opportunity for judgment from God and the, or God has the opportunity to show judgment or mercy, he rejoices to show mercy. That's who he is. So, if you would look at um, Micah, did I did I not give it to you, Micah? Okay, well, let me read it to you. Go back to yeah, um, Micah seven eighteen says this: Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of His inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. Translation of it is mercy rejoices against judgment. Now what's happening in Jonah? Why did I bring up Jonah? So he goes through Jonah and he says, you're going to be overthrown in 40 days. And the people repent and God changes his mind. Now on face value, it looks like the word of God wasn't fulfilled. On face value, but God said, because he's God's man now. When these prophets would speak, God would honor what they said. They were God's representation to the people. On face value, have you ever had a situation where it looks like what you asked for didn't happen? Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what actually happened. When he said in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, the Hebrew word for overthrown is hafak, H-A-F-A-K, I believe. Let me get it right. H-A-F-A-K, hafak has three, has multiple meanings. One of them is overthrown. Another meaning is overturned. Another meaning is changed. But my favorite meaning is converted. So what he was saying was, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown, overturned, changed, and also converted. Out of all of those meanings, God chose the one that had the most mercy in it. And he was prophesying they were going to be converted. And they were. And Nineveh was spared. So on face value, if you look at the word overturned, it looks like, did God fulfill his word? Oh, yes, and more. An entire city, I believe the Bible says 100. Love you. I believe the Bible says 120,000 people were spared. So he's walking, Jonah's walking through, "Uh uh-oh, you're going to be overturned. And God said, "Ah, the definition of the word I'm going to use is converted. He does not want us looking at the circumstances because God is only faithful and only merciful, even more so that Jesus has come. Mm -hmm. How did God really feel about the people in Nineveh? The last verse, I believe, is in chapter 4, verse 10. You know how he really felt about the people? He said, why are you so upset, Jonah, that I spared this city? It was a people that didn't even know their right hand from their left. Mm -hmm. While they're sinning, he simply said they don't know their right hand from their left. They don't get it. They don't know who I am. The other situation that I wanted to tell you about, don't have too many, was Jacob. And you all know the story that he's later in life and he's um, at this point has lost his wife. And they come back and tell Jacob that um, his favorite son, Joseph, his brothers, they come back and say he's probably dead. And they bring his coat that he had been given with the many colors, soaked in blood. His brothers were jealous, had sold him to Egypt. And they come back. And if you can only imagine, um, Joseph was from the wife that he loved. And they tell him he's dead. So as they go on, there, there's a famine in the land. And he has to send. He suggests that his sons go to Egypt. He says, that's the only place that has food. You need to go and you need to get some food. And so when they go get the food... Um, They encounter Joseph that they sold, but they don't recognize Joseph. And so Joseph, they barter a little bit, and Joseph says, I think you guys are spies. And to prove to me that you're not spies, I'm going to keep one of you. He takes Simeon. He says, you told me you have a younger brother. Go home and bring the younger brother and prove to me you're not spies. So they go back, and they're having this conversation with their father, And he says to them, see if you can see if I put the uh, as they get back and they're telling their father what happened. It says, as they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. The brothers and their father were terrified when they saw the bags of money. Everybody's scared. Jacob exclaimed, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin too. Everything is going against me. He couldn't have been more wrong. Joseph was not gone. Simeon was not gone. He Egypt was not going to take Benjamin. And everything is against you? You know, the interesting thing about Joseph, his name means he shall increase. So when he they came and told him... That Joseph was dead. It looked like. Wait wait a minute now. I've been speaking this. And prophesying. That he shall increase. And he's not here anymore. Circumstances can. Line themselves up. To make you think. That God is not moving. God won't move. God hasn't moved. And in fact. We're going in the opposite direction. Circumstances. If you look at them. Instead of developing, letting God develop in you, the fact that he is only faithful. Circumstances will have you come to the conclusion, everything is against me. And I thought, Jacob, can you imagine what he must have felt when they came and said, Jacob is alive and he wants all of us to come and he's saving everybody. And God has raised him up to second in command in Egypt. But what happens is we don't always get it instantly, the manifestation, 24 hours, five minutes after you pray. Sometimes you do, but not always because something is being developed in us, and I'm going to show you what. The next one that I want to talk about, and I only have about two or three more. The next one that I want to talk about is Gideon. And I don't think I put a scripture up, but if you remember the story of Gideon. When the angel comes to him, he's hiding from the enemy. He's hiding from the Midianites in a wine press. Stomping out the grapes and looking around the corner. (laughs) Stomping out the grapes and peeking. He's hiding. And the angel comes to him and says, hello, you mighty hero. The Lord is with you. And he's looking around. You talking to me? He called him a mighty hero. One translation says, you man of valor. But it was mighty hero. That's what he was saying in in our language. And so he has to convince Gideon. He has to convince Gideon that he's able to go against the enemy simply because the Lord is with him. That's all you need to know, Gideon. The Lord is with you. So Gideon starts to put out fleeces. Um, He needs signs, and he says, you know what, Um, I I need a little bit of help here. He says, I'm going to put out some wool, and I need in the morning that piece of wool to be wet and the ground around it to be dry, and that will prove to me that you're God. Okay? No problem. He wakes up the next day, and that's exactly what he has. His knees are still shaking, and you can imagine And he says, "Uh, I need one more sign. (laughs) He says, I'm going to put out another piece of wool, and I need that wool to be dry and everything around it wet. The Lord says, no problem. And he doesn't. So he's a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger. And he's okay because he's got 32,000 soldiers maybe to go to battle with. And God says, well, now I got a problem. My problem is, if I let you go with 32,000 soldiers, you're going to think you won the battle because you had 32,000 soldiers. So we're going to whittle it down. Okay, Lord. And it ends up by the time God is finished. The first group left, and it left 10,000. Okay, well, we're okay. I got 10,000. And God said, "Mm, I still got an issue with that. And by the time God is finished from 32,000 to 300 was all he had left to go to battle with. Now circumstances are not lining up to give me a victory it just does not appear we're going this thing is going to work out but when you study the, the story of Gideon, you know that God gave him victory after victory after victory and when you get to the end of the story of Gideon, he begins to chase the two Midianite kings, and their name was Zebah and Zalmuna. He's chasing them. And he stops at one point. He's Now, instead of hiding from his enemy, he's chasing his enemy. That's the process. That's the process. And he's chasing them, and when he gets to a group of people, he says, we're hungry, we need some food. And they say, well, you catch those Midianite kings, we'll talk about it. He says, I'll be back to see you. He goes to another town and he says, my soldiers are hungry. We're tired. We need some help, some reinforcement. And they say the same thing. Catch the two kings and we'll talk to you. And Gideon says, I'll be back. The same one who was hiding in the wine press captures the two kings, goes back and visits those towns. And the Bible says he beat them with briars. He gave them a whooping. I know what that's like because my grandmother helped raise me and she used to tell me when I got in trouble go out and pick a switch <laughs> and I was like I got to pick it yeah, yeah. go out and pick it and if you didn't pick one serious enough you knew she was going to get one even worse right. yeah. and we used to get what you called a whooping yes. you'd do a dance right. especially if it was in the summertime and you had on shorts you were doing a dance yes. looked like the river dance almost <laughs> he gave them a whipping. But he didn't stop there. He went on to capture the two Midianite kings and the Bible says he killed them and he stripped their camels of the royal ornaments that they were wearing. This is the same guy that when he started out he was hiding from his enemies. Because it's a process from the time you hear or receive the promise of God to the manifestation and God is doing something in you. I mentioned the Song of Solomon and very briefly, <clears throat> still my favorite book. When he takes notice of her, she says, Don't look at me because the sun has been harsh to me. And she goes on to say, My brothers were angry with me, so they made me the keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I haven't kept. She's always apologizing for how she looks. When he tells her how beautiful she is, she says, I'm just the rose of Sharon. Nothing special. And he said, well, I compared you to everybody else and they're thorns compared to you. He goes on and he loves and, and it highlights all through the song of Solomon where she misses it. He comes to at night and he wants her to come away with him and spend some time with him. And she says, well, I've washed my feet and taken my shoes off. How can I get them dirty again? What well, she's saying, it's an inconvenient time. I'm in mm-hmm. the bed. OK, this is an inconvenient time to spend time with you, Lord. And I went through all of that. I remember sometimes I'd have trouble sleeping when the children were young and the Lord would say, want to come away. And I say, you know, I, I just put three children to bed. I did about three loads of laundry. I'm the one that's got to get up first thing in the morning and I would lay there. And but then sometimes I would get up, but not all the time. Been there and done it. We go through all of this. By the time um, he tells her, you're all fair, my beloved, there's no spot in you. Nothing wrong. You're perfect. And yet, by the time we get to the end of the book, she still has these doubts. She's been asked to be married by him. And she says, if only he could love me like Joseph loved his brothers. That's interesting because Solomon is a type of Jesus. And I assure you, Joseph never died for his brothers. He forgave them. But he never died for him. And she's willing to settle for if he could love me like Joseph loved his brothers, not understanding. She's getting a whole deal. And my favorite part also in the Song of Solomon is this. One of my favorite is he prophesies to her and he says, your winter is over and gone and your flowers are appearing upon the earth. What is he saying? He's saying your latter rain has come. I'm it. You're not even dealing with the first, the former rain. You're dealing with the latter rain. Your winter is over and gone and your flowers are appearing upon the earth. You get everything. And yet she still says, if only he could love me like Joseph loved his brothers. And yet the process, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, her brothers who don't know what's been going on with her and the Lord, her and Solomon. We have a little sister and she has no breast. In other words, she's not very pretty. If she's been virtuous, we'll give her a gift. But if she hasn't been virtuous, we're going to put her away. They don't even know who she is. She goes on to say, she begins to tell them how beautiful she is, and she sees herself now as Solomon sees her. And she says, by the way, I have been virtuous. And she says, but that's neither here nor there, because I have been one who has found favor in the king's eyes, and I've been allowed to have peace. Amen. Whether you like it, don't like it, I found favor in the king's eyes, and I've been allowed to have peace. And she goes on to say, and now my vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Started out in the first part of the book, she doesn't think she's beautiful at all. She doesn't think she's qualified. She's not convinced of his love. But by the time we get to the end of the book, she says, I found favor. I have my own vineyard. And she's even at a point where she says, and those who work in my vineyard, I will give them their wages. They don't even have to earn it. I'm going to give. I'm going to share. I learned love from him when he kissed me with the kisses of his lips. I learned love from him. Now I'm in a position and I can show it. Thank you, Lord. It's a process. So while you're waiting on the manifestation of your promise, God is doing something and you. Yes. Rest assured, it's a finished work. I thought about Naomi and Naomi. And I have one verse from that. Naomi's name means pleasant. And you all know the story of Ruth. She follows her husband. She leaves Bethlehem, Judah. She goes to Moab. And to me, I'm like, we can just stop <clears throat> stop right here. She followed her husband from the house of bread and praise. That's what Bethlehem Judah means. From the house of bread and praise to Moab, which means wash pot. She followed her man from the house of bread and praise to wash pot. And she experienced a lot of bad things. I'll follow my husband as long as he's following Christ. Yeah. I follow you as long as you follow in Christ. But the minute you're taking a detour, you're on your own. She goes to Moab and she loses everything but the daughter-in-law. Isn't God merciful? She decides to go home and one daughter-in-law goes back. She says, you know, I can't have any more children to help you girls out. And so one daughter-in-law stays in Moab. One says, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. When she returns to Bethlehem, Judah, the ladies say, Naomi, is that you? Naomi means pleasant, pleasant one. And she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And I always think, even from the first time I read it, I thought, the Lord didn't tell you to leave Bethlehem, Judah. You thunk that up on your own, you and your husband. He didn't tell you that. She goes back to Bethlehem, Judah. So she says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And yet, because God is delighting and looking for an opportunity to show mercy all the time in every situation, he does just that. And God even uses her. When I was in Israel I told you I I found favor. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray for him all the time. One of the main rabbis in Jerusalem is two brothers. Moshe, Rabbi Moshe gave me a book that he wrote on the book of Ruth. Now, I've been trying to read this book. It is so it's so hard to read. First of all, he's Jewish. He's not a believer. But you can learn things from there. He says something really powerful about Ruth. And in fact, in his eyes, not Boaz. Not Ruth are the hero. Naomi is. And he says, Naomi is the hero for this reason. When they got back to Bethlehem, Judah, she had the wisdom and the insight and the ear of God to know what God was doing so that she could point Ruth in the direction she needed to go. So sometimes the one pointing, sometimes you see all these names and these people up front. And what he's saying is, but who was pointing them? Who was directing them and leading them in the way they should go. And so they get back and in spite of what she's feeling and in spite of what she's thinking, God directs her Ruth to Boaz's field. And that word, she happened to be in Boaz's field, is a Hebrew word, kara, and it means to be at the right place at the right time. Mm. And whenever I take communion and whenever I'm praying, I always thank God that for me and my family, he always has us at the right place at the right time for protection, for open doors, for blessings, to minister, to be ministered to. Always. So she happened to be in Boaz's field. And you know the story. And so uh, Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. And then we come to this verse in Ruth. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, because uh, at this point she marries Boaz and she has a son, Ruth. Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. What was the process? She said, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And yet, as she continued to walk with the Lord and as she continued to be led by him and help Ruth and help position her and tell her how to seek Boaz, and go make a petition to him to be kinsman and redeemer. As she continues to, even just going back to Bethlehem, Judah was a step in the right direction. As she's doing all of this, by the time you get to the end of the, the book, even the women are praising her. Amen. Maybe you didn't want us to call you pleasant one, but we're going to call you more than that. We're going to call you blessed. Amen. And we're going to tell you what your grandson is going to do for you. Amen. He ended up being Obed. Ended up being the grandfather of David. And Obed means servant and worshiper. That's who Naomi was able to produce. She was the grandmother of this child, Obed. Beginning, bitter, by the end of the story, even the townspeople are praising her because of the work that God has done. I have, I think, one more verse, but let me talk about Mark first. And you've heard me talk about him before, but Mark to me is a glaring neon sign in the scripture of God's ability to do a work in us, regardless of how we started out. Mark is traveling with Paul and he's traveling traveling with Barnabas, and he does not give us a reason, the Bible, of why he turns back. And when God does not give a reason, what is he saying? It's none of your business. Mm -hmm. All we know is he turned back. (coughs) Later on, he wants to rejoin Barnabas and Paul, and Paul says no. And he says no so violently that he and Barnabas argue about it. They split up. And I always thought, Paul, first of all, you were killing Christians. You started out missing it. How is it possible that somebody is in your group and makes a, a step that you don't approve of and you decide they're not worthy to continue? Always puzzle me. Barnabas splits up and he travels with Mark. Paul gets another sidekick, he gets Silas. Nevertheless, now we got four people, and the gospel is still being preached. Whatever happened to Mark? We get clues. First of all, near the end of Paul's life, when he's in prison, and I've been in one of the prisons he was in, and it was not pretty, still is not pretty, even to this day. He says send me John Mark. I perceive he is profitable for the kingdom. You ask him for John Mark. How did he perceive he was profitable for the kingdom? He must have heard. John Mark is out there and he is promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm in prison, I need him. When you study Peter, Peter's writings, he refers to John Mark as his son. So Peter knew about it. And then God gives him one of the greatest honors in the Bible. He is one of the fourth testimonies of Jesus Christ and he wasn't even there. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. That's how God chose to honor Mark. We don't know how he started out. All we know is Paul didn't want any more to do with it. But by the... Because of the process that was being worked out in him, by the time you get to the end of his story, God has elevated him. James. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And I've been meditating. What do you mean needing nothing, Lord? I've been meditating on that. All you need is the promise. But you won't have to be convinced that God will fulfill it. You won't have to be convinced of his love. You won't have to be convinced of his faithfulness. He's wanting endurance to come and be developed in us. So that when troubles come, we go, "Uh uh-oh, opportunity for great joy. Mm -hmm. I got an opportunity for God to blow my socks off. I got an opportunity for God to show me who he is in this situation. And instead of shaking and quaking and doubting and being fearful and hiding in a wine press Mm -hmm. and telling somebody, call me bitter, Mm -hmm. I have an opportunity for great joy. And I'm becoming complete and needing nothing. And I'm able to rest assured. I'm able to sit down and not have my heart racing inside and my brain trying to figure it out. I'm able to go to bed and sleep well. And I'm able to look up at the heaven and know it's a finished work. I have nothing to worry about. And that's his word. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you you're doing something in us beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And you're bringing us, you are bringing us to a place where we are complete and needing nothing. In every situation, every situation is only an opportunity for you to give us great joy. And by your grace, we're learning to rest assured because it is a finished work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte@gmail.com, at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in, and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.